Greetings, and welcome to Office Hours Air. We're a production of KZSU Stanford Radio 90.1 FM and the Stanford Daily. My name is Noah Sviven, I'm your host, and today on the program we are joined by Alexander Nemrov. He teaches art history here at Stanford, he's the author of numerous books, he's a very popular lecturer, and in his vulnerability, he models the way in which art, whether painting or literature, poetry or cinema, shapes us and calls us to life. In 2012, Professor Nemrov moved from Yale to Stanford to become the Carl and Marilyn Toma Provisional Professor in the Arts and Humanities. His course, How to Look at Art and Why, is among the most popular classes in the humanities at Stanford, and it represents a shift in his relationship to teaching. He's talked about how the class represents a commitment to modeling an intense relationship to art, rather than just the methods of art history or the details of artistic periods, which is not to say those things aren't important, but that the life-affirming potential of art must come first. As he tells students on the first day of class, the class is not meant to convey a kind of art history one can learn from a book. The kind of art history on offer in that class prizes the experience of appreciating art, of letting ourselves be vulnerable enough to let the art work on us. His lectures are testaments to his decades of looking at and loving art, and this life we all share in honor of which art is made. For those who have not heard his 2018 commencement address delivered at his alma mater, the University of Vermont, I cannot recommend it enough. It shares the same urgency for the living world and the remembered world as Nemrov's art history lectures, so one quickly gets a sense of his orientation to the world. His two most recent books are Fierce Poise, Helen Frankenthaler in 1950s New York, published in 2021, and The Forest, A Fable of America in the 1830s, published earlier this year. Over the course of our conversation, we'll discuss these two books, we may discuss his commencement address, and we'll discuss broader themes of calling, vocation, discernment. If attention is the basic unit of human experience— the basic gift we give each other in our relationships, then it might help to think of Alexander Nemirov as an especially astute practitioner of attention. It's this quality of his thinking and speaking that most moves me. Professor Nemirov, welcome to the program. Thank you, Noah. Thank you for that beautiful introduction, too. Well, thank you for coming. Your latest book, The Forest, is, I think, not like your other books, right? It's part truth and part fiction featuring real people who actually did live and then characters of your contriving. And the book proceeds with these vignettes, these brief stories of lost moments. But this method combining archival work, historiographical work with a moral imagination, it seems like the sort of thing that a lot of people might have problems with or, or have things about which to say. And yet with that method, you're able to achieve a narrative immersion that other approaches might struggle to achieve. So I, I wanted to ask how you decided to write the book in that way. I think I felt that I should not be constrained by the facts to tell what is true. You know, that if I were going to rely just on the empirical record, no matter how rich it might be for that time, which is America in the 1830s, that you know, I would still have to um, leave much unsaid because much of human experience then or now is really not explicable or reachable via the documentary record. So I wanted to rely, therefore, on the powers of fiction to envision, hopefully with grace and kindness and respect at all kind at all times, but to envision. Uh, life as it might have been then, to create a picture in the round that would be about, you know, centered on the trees, centered on the ongoing drama of the destruction of the forests of this country. But but it's not a book of eco-criticism or anything like that. It's rather a book about human beings and I think finally their mystical relation to what is perishable. How did you go about writing the the vignettes? I mean, in, in terms of the process of deciding this this particular thing is going to be a, a chunk of story, and these ones will be different ones. 
I think it was largely intuitive. You know, I knew I wanted to start with someone chopping down a tree, and and I had done a lot of research, but I kind of just let the one story guide me to another. So, for example, the first one is about like a lone um, pine in Maine, and and about a man chopping it down, and then it describes the, if you like, the biography of that tree as it's you know, dismantled and then floated in logs down a river and turned into furniture, et cetera. But I then could really see that my next piece, and these are just vignettes, episodes, just of a few pages at a time, should be about axes and, like, where did the axes come from? Who made the axes? So, and and on it goes. And there's about 57 uh, vignettes altogether. Uh, and um, you know, some are some are quite documented, others not. And of course, right with the the axe, if I'm remembering correctly, it goes from being something that's produced by one person as a as a activity of passion to being this diffused thing that's made by a whole a whole bunch of people. Yes, the industrialization of America, which kind of is beginning in earnest in the 1830s. So from an artisanal kind of workshop uh, type labor into, you know, the the, the equivalent in 1830s style of a, a streamline uh, factory setup, yes. You talked about our, our, our mystical relationship to the perishable. Um, I mean, what is it, what does it entail to try and empathize with or feel for something that that isn't human? I mean, right, a lot of us have relationships with animals, um, and so many people are familiar with identifying with their dog. And then it's a, it's a little bit different. Maybe it takes more imaginative work to relate to a tree or, or a tool. Yeah, I think at the heart of it is a sense of the, the, the mystery of trees, the way they enfold within their luminous presence before us. For example, here on the Stanford campus, yet a, a not inconsiderable amount of darkness, you know, and the way they front us um, vertically as echoes of our own standing posture and seem all but animate in their kind of mysteriously forward-fronting, facing, yet retiring uh, uh, kind of um, inscrutability in front of us. And so, I don't know. I think, for me, that's always been an appealing thing. You know, a, a tree can stop one in one's tracks and um just the way the the way the leaves gently rustle in a wind or the way the light plays over the leaves or shimmers on those leaves or of course the bare skeletal outlines of a of a tree in winter against a gray sky in the northeast where i went to college uh, you know all of these things i think have really frozen me or fixed me and as with all of my writing i try to render those sensations, those experiences in words such that it's not all lost once it's transcribed. Mm. Do you want to talk about some actual trees in, in your own life that have left impressions on you? I mean, when I have struggled with you know certain forms of despair, I've noticed that the way in which I relate to trees shifts, and they take on this kind of scary, um, you know, somewhat alive, somewhat not alive look. And then when I'm feeling receptive to awe, there are beautiful, you know, things to, to think about and look at. Um, but I, yeah, I, I'm, I'm curious to hear about some some trees in, in, in your own life. Yeah, I love that question. And I appreciate your sensitivity to the way trees can change depending upon one's mood. Not long ago, I, was, I went back to uh, Lexington, Massachusetts, which is where I went to kindergarten. And I found the house where I lived when I was five. And what I recall is in the backyard there, there were, uh, that's where we used to play kind of wiffle ball baseball. And I remember how the the outfield fence, quote unquote, was, you know, an incredible distance away. Well, when I walked back into that same backyard in 2021, you know, I saw that the difference from our home plate, the distance from our home plate to the outfield wall was about 20 feet, you know, it was nothing. But at just behind home plate, 
is a big, beautiful tree. I don't even remember it, Noah, but I was very struck by it upon returning, and it seemed to be a tree that far predated my five-year-old self being there. So, you know, I would say that really caused me to pause there and think about the continuities and discontinuities of who one is at different points in one's life and, um, you know, the reachable and unreachable fences we set our stars by. And somehow there was a tree uh, right there superintending the whole, uh, the whole drama. Mm. How, how does the way in which children relate to the world you know, speak to the way in which you go about writing and thinking? Because I think there's, there's some similarity there. Oh, totally. I I think, uh, you know, the book that got me tenure at Stanford and Yale was a book basically about childlike perception or the child's perception of the world or even the infant's perception of the world, which is to say when the infant beholds the world, you know, one theory of that perception is that the world glows and glistens and is enchanted because it has no names, you know, and so... We don't. We haven't yet taken the fall into knowledge, and everything is kind of a mysterious and vibrant sensation. So, I wrote a book about a still life painter named Raphael Peel, and uh, who made paintings. One of which is at the De Young Museum in San Francisco called Blackberries, where you know, sure they're blackberries, ripe and unripe in a bowl, but they seem more in the way that a child would see them as as mysteriously, um, you know, as mysterious, as unknown things, you know, that yet have a charm and an animacy and, you know, are to switch to your ideas about good and bad trees, depending on your mood. They're like um, they're like the world in a good mood, you know, when things look um, bright and luscious as opposed to dark and grim, which Raphael Peel also could do. What what did you learn in the process of writing The Forest? I think about... Um, I think about my own um, sensibility. Uh, I think my own narrative voice as conveying things that are, if you like, irresponsible, you know, irresponsible beauties and emotions that are very hard to articulate in scholarly prose, but again, like a, nar- a fictional narrative or a kind of philosophical narrative that isn't really beholden to what I should say or could say or need to say or must say, like that really, not surprisingly, frees a person up to touch with I think tenderness, um, in my case, it would be this sort of mysticism within myself and and even more to sort of believe, Noah, that that otherworldliness or that faraway voice is actually the best thing, the, 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 the utmost thing I have to give to my students here at Stanford, that um, the, you know, the plotting of one's life according to rational coordinates is available in a rather deluxe fashion here, but I was more interested in uh, what cannot be plotted. And, you know, as I say a lot, you know, because many people are skeptical, skeptic about this, and also there are certainly a good number of haters too, but that the interesting thing is how I used to teach in a more, if you like, more kind of rational, skeptical way, and I, I, and this was back at Yale and at Stanford in the '90s, and you know, I would have like 18 students in my classes and so on. But as soon as I became more, um, you know, um, trying to pursue something that could almost not be described in words as something that is yet emotionally truthful. I had hundreds of students, you know. Oh. So I don't teach for the enrollment, but I did note that there must be something I'm thinking about that people find to be 
um, vital and important for their own lives. Yeah. At, at the beginning, I, I described your approach as as being vulnerable, and and the reason why I say that is because I think it takes a certain kind of of comfort or inner strength to be able to talk openly about one's innermost associations um, in relation to the world. And I'm, 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 I'm curious if you think that's something that younger scholars can do, if that's something that you've done more because you've gotten older or if it has to do with your institutional position. I mean, and, and it, you know, I guess if I could ask one version of the question, I mean, it's like, why, why, why do more people not talk openly about, you know? Yeah. Thank you for that. I think, I think people often say to me, oh, well, you can do this because you have tenure. And I guess there's some truth to that. I could certainly never even get a job at Stanford, let alone get tenure here with the kind of stuff I do. But I th- the way I experience it inwardly is actually it has taken me a long time to articulate who I was and still am at the age of 60 and the age of, if you like, 8 or 18. You know, that I'm more in touch with my innocent self now, um, the one who is more interested in emotional truths and less interested in, from my point of view, like a performative argumentation, which is the coin of the realm in, in academia. Uh, so, you know, I think it's been a long road for me to learn how to be open and, in your word, vulnerable and say what's on my mind. But it's also a very difficult skill or technique, if you like, to be able to master because one can overfreight it a million ways, as I have done, either too personal or too abstract. You know, it's a very hard, elusive energy to, to get right. And uh, But I, I enjoy the lecture and the seminar formats as, if you like, venues for the enactment of this way of being, you know, like not just dutiful recitations of what I've already thought about, but as kind of living real-time events where I get to find what is within me or, as I say it, think in public. I want to ask you about your process of preparing for these lectures because there's... You know, dozens of slides with all sorts of right images, often the same one, but focusing on different details. And you don't have notes from what I've seen. You know, you're you're walking around with a clicker, and remembering where to go. Um, and right, I mean, so it's like, I, I just want to know how you're how you prepare for these lectures. Yes, well, the PowerPoint is a help, right? Because uh, I know going in the sequence and. I think it's also just 30 years of training. Uh, You know, when I started out, I used to memorize my lectures because I've always spoken without notes, feeling that the notes are a kind of hindrance or like blockage between me and the material and me and the students. But in those days, I would memorize my lectures, even having the lecture on my steering wheel as I drove down 280 because I lived in San Francisco. So not very smart, but that's how I did it. When I was at Yale, I would get up, and this is when my daughters were very little, and I wanted to do a good job and be a good dad and good parent, and I didn't want to be absent, you know, writing my lectures unduly into the night and so on. So I would get up at 2 in the morning or 3 in the morning and write the lectures, write out, that is to say, create them, think about them then, and just just go right into the adrenaline rush of delivering them. You know, if the class was at 11.30, I would invariably finish at, you know, preparing the lecture I started at 2, I would finish at like 11.28, you know, and then just rush into the classroom and go on the adrenaline rush. Now at Stanford, I, I prepare less, but I do prepare. I wrote my lecture for today, which was on Vermeer, wrote in the sense of I just assembled the PowerPoint, I don't write anything out. 
But I assembled the PowerPoint on the plane, the airplane from Charlotte, North Carolina to San Francisco yesterday. And I made a special point, Noah, of of doing all the scut work, all the busy work while I was in the airport. Uh, And my special treat to myself was to do the lecture on the plane because then I get really lost in the work and uh, the time flies. Yeah. And that's what I did. And then I, I just remember it. You know, I, I walk in in the morning and I just rehearse in my head a little bit about the transitions and about the main point. But then I just do it because I want it to be fresh to me in order to be fresh to the students. Yeah, it's something I've heard you say multiple times is that you're listening to yourself as you. That's true. I take notes on my own lectures because, you know, sometimes you do say, you know, the work of art or whatever it is. In my case, the lecture is smarter than the lecturer, you know. Not unlike a Quaker meeting, maybe. Okay. Yeah, 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 absolutely. <laughs> so you, you talked about your um, your your present style and, and commitments being the culmination of your career and formation. And that's something you touch on in the beginning of Fierce Boys, how your how the art of, of, of Helen Frankenthaler was waiting for you almost and as you became more receptive toward it as you got older. Can you talk more about that? Yeah, I think I'm a late bloomer. And so that book's about Helen Frankenthaler in her 20s. Um, but I wrote it in my 50s. And it took me until I was in my 50s, I think, to be able to relate to how seriously and all in her conception and practice of being an artist was when she was in her 20s. And since there's such a volatile, since I think the 20s are such a volatile moment in one's life, you know, I have a lot of respect for her work that she was able to pour it out in a kind of diary on the walls kind of way without being self-indulgent or making for a sort of pity or, you know, like a self-pitying, narcissistic exploration of her feelings, but rather just portraying feelings in the raw. I think that really resonated for me because in my 20s I was, you know, as raw and as confused as her, but not, you know, I didn't, I wasn't able to give it the form that she could give it. I was... I don't say this critically about myself because it was a process, but I was very, um, you know, alienated from some of the deepest and best things about myself. And what is it about her that made her so precocious in this in this way? I'm not really sure. I think, uh, you know, may, maybe, you know, her parents always told her that she would be a special artist and you know sometimes the power of suggestion is there uh, and she never doubted that she would succeed in a world largely of men I think it's interesting about that book that I always conceived that I was going to call her Helen in the book not Frankenthaler I felt in that one choice Frankenthaler everything would be determined in a kind of distancing way. I would be the biographer, she would be the artist. But if I called her Helen, uh, you know, it would it would not only create a real bond between me and her, but also between the reader and her. And I knew there would be some pushback, like, who is this guy? Like, if he was writing about Jackson Pollock, he wouldn't say, Jackson did this and Jackson did that. Though it's probably... Well, I know that's true because, you know, I don't feel the same connection to Pollock as I do to Helen. <laughs> and I I really enjoyed that, having her be the heroine of my book and a heroine I really identify with. And I, you know, I felt that closeness and I also enjoyed or didn't mind the um, different criticisms I received for for my sexist, uh, you know, would-be sexist uh, treatment of her because, you know, um, those are coming from people who are policing the rules of engagement rather than people who have actually 
cared about the artist and the art as I did. Yeah, so it's kind of a invigorating experience in a lot of ways. And and I think you wrote that that she was a that Helen was a, a dinner guest uh, of of your parents maybe a few days before you were born. Well, her her uh, partner Clement Greenberg and my father I happened to notice were at the same dinner party a day after I was born. And I saw that in one of Greenberg's diaries. Greenberg was a very famous art critic. And I even went to that date, I must say, Noah, just to see what was going on in my hometown the day I was born and the day after. And I wasn't even that surprised because the intellectual circles are so small that there would be this connection. But the connection does speak to why I would write about Helen in the first place, which is to say um, she was a student at Bennington College, and my father was a professor at Bennington College. And so uh, she took a class with him, and I knew about her for a long time before I ever contemplated writing about her or knew how to write or anything like that. So, And I'm from Bennington, Vermont, so there is a connection there. Yeah. And right, each chapter concerns a day. In, in each year from 1950 to 1960. But right they're, they're not exclusively about the titular date, um, but that's a grounding for it. What led you to decide to approach it uh, that way? Just an intuition, I think, or more precisely, it was the sense of what her own paintings are, which is they're very improvisational. They're completed for the most part in a day. They try to catch life on the wing and so it seemed a natural for me that I would portray her biography, that is, the life of the person who made these ravishing, uh, instantaneous kind of paintings in, in, a, in a medium, namely specific days, that you know, aligned with her own artistic practice. And on the topic of, of children's you know, special relationship to the to the the world around them. I was really struck by these stories you put in there of of her as a girl playing with um, a nail polish in, in a sink and I think chalk walking along the sidewalk trying to draw a straight line, right? Something like this. Yes, both of those things are true. Drawing a singular unbroken chalk line from her playground in Central Park all the way eight blocks to where she lived with no bit, you know, biting no interruption at all. And then with the nail polish, emptying her mother's blood red nail polish into the white porcelain sink and getting in trouble for sure. But uh, yes, that the the girl, you know, is already the, uh, you know, the mother of the woman, as it were, like is the continuities of who we are, you know, are consistent across time. Yeah. Right. I, I want to ask about this process of, of closely studying visual art and then representing that with the written word and, and trying to honor the, the beauty of, of the visual art. It seems like a real challenge. So how, how have you developed that skill over the course of your career? Yes, I think, well, my father was a poet and my aunt was a famous photographer, um, Deanne Arbus. So... I feel like there's some kind of natural basis for an interest in words and in pictures in our house. I think it's a really good question. I'm not really sure why, but I I feel that words are pictures, you know, that they should be pictures and that the goal for the art historian or any kind of writer is to be imagistic. My favorite novelists are the ones, you know, who portray the world in vivid pictures on with words, you know, make make the world sensuously immediate. Uh, in that way, I'm sure I'm like most readers, you know, who do not like abstractions and difficult to follow, um, you know, learned disquisitions, but appreciate instead like raw puncturing kind of images. So I think learning to speak about art and write about art for me is a never entirely successful dream of conveying images with, with words. 
it was really special for me to read your recent May 2023 essay titled Flying Home, A Recollection of My Parents, because in it you're taking the skills, the methods that, that you do in lecture and bringing them to bear on two photographs, one representing your, your inexperience of your dad and one representing your mom. Can you talk about those two photos? Yeah, so one of them is a photo taken from my father's airplane, not by him, but taken, you know, mechanically by a wing-mounted camera during World War II of him uh, swooping in along with his squadron mates in the Royal Air Force. My father was an American flying in the Royal Air Force to deliver basically kill shots on a sitting duck German minesweeper in the Bay of Biscay uh, during the latter part of the Second World War. And this is a photo that came to me from the nephew of one of my father's squadron mates, a a man named Prince, last name Prince, who was actually killed later in the war. And the nephew had been researching his uncle and had encountered these photographs and then had thought to contact me uh, as the son of one of his uncle's squadron mates. And the guy had done a bunch of research and could even determine this, this photo must be coming from the plane that my father flew. And the other one is uh, of my mother, who was an English woman that my American father met during the war, looking, you know, as I remembered her very, uh, although she's only 19 in the photo and I would not come along for another 19 years later, but looking very much like I remembered her. She died in 2011 at age 85, but, uh, you know, with a kind of pained, wise, sad beauty. And, uh, you know, who wouldn't necessarily have such a pained, wise, sad beauty having been subject to nightly bombing over the years, and in her case, growing up in a very dysfunctional home. Yeah, so it's really about the legacy of my parents on me, and, uh, you know, my father's flights of poetry as well as of literal aviation, and then my mother's trauma and her sadness and her pain and yeah, it was it was a beautiful essay for me to write. I love it myself, and I I feel like that's the first time Noah where I've ever kind of made peace with my parents too. So you know, at a relatively late age, uh, you know, nothing dramatic, but just it just kind of comes over me that you know I could express love for them. You have a line in there that your mom knew flying more than your dad did during the war not because she was right, a pilot, but because she was on the ground during the Blitz. I, I just wanted to you know, open that up because of the consequences of a thought, an idea like that that says when it comes to experiences of war, the experts might be the people who are on the ground. Yes, exactly. My mother always had to be very careful getting on... Uh, Escalators, for example, it was very hard for her to get the step, you know, get that first step. And that's because her balance was all thrown off by all the bombs <laughs> that fell around her and that destroyed her neighbor's house and all of that. And yeah, she was an expert. And I would say, you know, very traumatized accordingly. And I think. you know, very interested in history, therefore also. She was the one who really taught me my love of history, of the past. And it's very hard for me, maybe impossible, to get, to, to sort of um, escape the, the very, like, you know, powerful matrix of history, sadness, and grief, um, destruction that she gave to me. And... For a long time, I thought of it as the the explanatory key to end all keys, you know, that as a teacher, I needed to educate my students in darkness and, you know, to have a kind of um, tragic tone and persona accordingly. 
I'm glad to say that in a slow process of perhaps the last 20 or so years, ever since my daughters were born, that I've, you know, been able to be, you know, as I joke, the cheeriest of the Nemirovs at this point. <laughs> I mean, in my own family, I'm by far the least cheery, but in in my extended family, thinking of, well, thinking of my parents and so on and my older and younger brothers, like I would say, like I'm, you know, a pretty, pretty happy-go-lucky, you know, but it's just to do with like recognizing even over and against my mother's vivid legacy to me that, you know, lightness and pleasure, joy are, are not trivial. Something I've struggled with is how to think about the, the past or how to relate to it. I have been fearful and some friends have been fearful for me that there's a certain risk in overexposure to the past or dwelling too much in memories, whether from one's own life or from events we only have access to because of archival materials or things that other people have written. Um, and right among historically oriented scholars, I mean, you are particularly committed to an experiential relationship to the past. Um, to really conjuring up a, a, a you know visceral notion of what happened. So I, I, I wanted to ask in in what ways and under what circumstances, you know, you think we people can go about and should be going about relating to the past, and is there a risk of, well, I, you know, as you said earlier, too much darkness? Yeah, I guess the risk would be how they describe traumatized people, right, where they cannot get out of they're just fixated in the event let's say or this set of events or in my case it would be like the whole kind of slow boiling long-term tragedy of substance abuse in my household and when I was a kid and like what you know the long kind of slow trauma of something like that so yeah it's a real danger right because people can really destroy themselves becoming fixated even on their very escape from that, you know, because they can feel guilty about in the sense of survivor's guilt about having somehow evaded the doom of, um, you know, of substance abuse and all that. But in another sense, I don't know, I, I really like wandering around empty fields where something happened and you know, feeling the wind blow through you as if you're not there. Uh, and I think it's a properly humbling and beautifying kind of experience. Uh, it's a kind of ghost story. And it somewhat answers to my idea that historians are the people who are appointed by the rest of us to remember kind of officially delegated that responsibility so that the rest of us don't need to or don't need to in any particularly interesting way. And uh, I guess I both lament that designation and kind of love it, too. Um, yeah, empty fields, to me, they're Rembrandt-like often, like they're as good as or better than going to a museum. Well, how should people who are attuned to the, the past and, and taking on that responsibility relate to others um, who, for, you know, who are not so interested? Right? In other words, I guess what I'm trying to get at is that I, I, I think that there could be a risk of someone um, becoming detached from other people or, or, or not engaging enough by... Yeah, yeah. Is that what people, your friends, say about you, that you're too <laughs> involved in, in the past? Is that the danger that they see with you? Or is it more to do with what I said before, just being fixated on things that happened? Um, so since my, the, the death of my grandmother, right, I've been, I've been reading a lot of texts and looking at art related to mortality. And I've had a, a, a friend tell me, actually, this was yesterday, that... Um, I shouldn't let my insistent awareness of the finitude of things get in the way of appreciating them while they're happening. Um, so it's that particular thing about being less attuned to the present because one's yeah. focused on the past. Yeah, I think, uh, I don't know, I think I can 
experience like the the fulsomeness of the child's perception of the ever glittering seemingly endless and infinite sparkle of the world and be quite at home in the world of you know fog and um you know um, valleys and um ruins and things like that um so i don't know i think i think one brings a lot to or i don't know i would say that well i guess i would say that i do like battlefields for example because they are quiet and they are respectful places when you visit them now and it is frankly a way to escape from the you know uh, the sort of um ordinary chatter of a life on earth so i guess it's misanthropic in that way but i also feel a lot more love for for other people now than i used to so i'm experiencing like the i don't know the kind of blending of these empty fields with the the beauty of human beings and in our in my, in our moment and you know uh finding a balance between the grace of presence and the kind of um you know fugue of absence what is it about being a parent that's that's helped you be more um i think joyful? it's experiencing unconditional love you know, just as a, which um, obviously softens and releases a lot of feelings that mistakenly one can feel are the be all and end all of, you know, being a thoughtful and wise person, you know. Um, uh, so I think that's that's what it is. Can we talk about your commencement address? Please, yeah. You 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 share in in that speech stories from your time at the University of Vermont and you talk about the death of your brother and and you know your experience babysitting as a young man. I mean there's all sorts of stories that are woven into it. Um and I guess I'm just curious what it was that that led you to writing that speech at that time. I think when they asked me to be the commencement speaker at my alma mater, I knew exactly what I was going to talk about. And uh, I knew it would be goodness that just came to me right away. And it was a fairly easy thing to write. And, you know, frankly, Noah, if they hadn't been absolutely insistent, I'm sure from hard experience that I could talk for no more than 20 minutes, (laughs) you know, because I'm sure they had people who were very uh, generous in their remarks. Uh, I, w- I could have said a lot more, but I was glad 20 minutes was enough in any case. And I I just, uh, I loved the stories in that. Do you remember the story of Phoebe? In yes. That? Yeah, the, the girl. The, the woman, yeah. The girl I met at the frat party, yeah. And uh, um. The listeners are like, "What's this? What's he talking about? I've got to, got to check that out." So maybe I won't go into detail with it, but it, suffice it to say, uh, listeners, that it, it, was, uh, it was quite a beautiful story. And I did reach out to her. Actually, I had the alumni office contact her, and because I hadn't spoken to her in thirty-five years, but. Um, so the alumni office gave me her number. They checked it out, and she said, "Yes, I'll, t- I'll, of course, I'll talk to the guy." And I brought it up, and she, I said, you know, the whole thing, like how we met, um, because I had a crush on her just from seeing her picture mm. in a high school yearbook when I was in high school, when I was vacationing in Vermont, and then cut to a few years later, we're at the University of Vermont. I'm talking to this girl at a party. Mm. I say in a chivalrous manner, can I get you a beer? I go walk to the keg, and as I'm filling the second of the two cups that I'm about to take back to this girl, I realize that it's the same girl whose picture I had seen 
And so I went back to her because she hadn't said her name. I said, I know who you are. And she said, who am I? And I told her her name. And then we started dating, and it was really beautiful. I mean, we were ultimately very different people, but it was very sweet. Anyway, talking to her many years later, it was a very nice conversation. And she watched, uh, you know, from her home, she watched the thing remotely and it was very sweet, and the point was that it was just like a, one of these sweet rhymes of life, you know, where sometimes things coalesce and, and there is goodness in the world. You, you, you said that, you, there's, that there was much more to that you could have said. I mean, if you, I'm curious in your day-to-day life how you experience your own repository of memories, you know, and, and, and how to look at, and, at art and why you talk about our inner chapel. Um, I mean, ha, ha, when, when are you visiting your, your inner chapel? All the time. Yeah. And the, the rooms would be not only rooms of memory, but would be rooms of uh, hmm, just, you know, passages in books, paintings I've looked at, which sure are remembered by me, but feel more present to me. And then same thing with memories proper. I, I somehow feel that, and I don't know how you feel about this, but that one's experiences tend to be very present at all times. If they're, if they emerge, if they're bidden by you to emerge. I was just in Vermont this weekend, um, visiting my younger daughter, who I'm very proud to say is is uh, a freshman at the same place where I went to school, University of Vermont, and I don't know, I was experiencing it all the same places, non-nostalgically, but in a present tense. And I made a special point of driving down the length of the state after I'd seen her to go to a lecture I was giving in Massachusetts to really... Well, I wanted to treat myself to that because I had a feeling it would be a, not a memory, but a kind of living um, connection to who I was and who I have always been, and it was. <laughs> it was fantastic, I thought. So um, I think it's, all, it's always, I'm always kind of living, I'm always far away, Noah, and I think one of the tricks for me is and I don't know how this is for you, but for me, it's like how to not be guarded in my farawayness, my spaciness, as I tell my students in this year's version of the class, but to um, be generous with it and open with it, um, not in a gratuitous sort of TED Talk, like look at all it that I am kind of way, but more to think about how my students are, you know, all of them have this same potentiality, so I feel like to be far away and most beautiful, most, you know, extraordinary in, in, the, in precisely that way, you know. I mean, I guess it's called the soul, you know. And can you, can you I mean, maybe you, this won't be called immediately to mind, but you gave a definition of the soul in one of your lectures that for me really let that word click back into place. Um, what was it? It was, it was about the difference between, you know, someone who's, who's alive and dead and the look that's in their eyes when they're alive that's gone when they're gone. And, and that thing that's there that then can uh, be lost is the soul. That, that's what you had said. I see. That, that makes me think that maybe it was about Adam Alzheimer's painting of the rest in the flight of... The rest on the flight into Egypt where the Holy Family is camping beneath the stars. And if you look at the stars in that painting, which is a very small painting, there are just little dots of white, as you might imagine. But then if you look adjacent at another picture, say a portrait, it's the same little dot of white that imparts the sparkle to the eye of a person and that our eyes are stars and we are, you know, um, universal, uh, infinite, and 
you know, that is what I see in the eyes of my students. And I'll give myself a pat on the back and say that, you know, though I'm just like any teacher in the sense of, you know, being quite capable of boring people to death, I would say overall, like, it's nice to try to try to find that sparkle rather than you know be confronted with a kind of inertness and a and a kind of deadness yeah uh, that i would be responsible for ultimately by what i say or don't say how would you characterize your responsibility to your students i think it's a huge responsibility it's uh I have often said, though I say it a little less now, um, but that I have only three responsibilities whenever I teach. It's to the art, it's to myself, and to the students. That's it. But, it, you know, it's a way for me of saying it better be good. And as we know, not everyone thinks it is good, no matter how well it goes. So it's a high standard, but I'd have it no other way. And... Uh, as for the students in particular, I think, Noah, I think it has to do with me letting go of any residual kind of schoolmasterly energies I may have had of trying to teach people, you know, the, the rudiments of art history and to subject them to bouts of memorization and all of that, but to really develop the class ever more purely into a meditation on thought itself and on my students' capacity to think for themselves, which is, as we know, is like a terrifying thing for anyone. I think it's particularly terrifying for students who are really expecting to do well based on a very logical, definable set of, you know, requirements and and thinking for oneself is harder, but uh, that that's my responsibility, I think. And that entails me being open and fair with myself and generous towards myself in order that I can be so hopefully generous to my students. And, and what if we flip it? What, how would you characterize students' responsibilities to you and to teachers mm -hmm. in general? I think my Stanford students are uh, remarkable in how uh, caring they are about the teacher. I think in this caring defined as like really not only able to attend to what I'm saying, but also think about it and often make really sterling comments that really educate me. And I'm glad to say that I've overcome any last fear or false modesty uh, uh, and now always have Q&A sessions as the last part of every class meeting. So I get to benefit now more and more from students' insights. Uh, but in terms of their responsibilities, I think, uh, you know, they have to do, I just hope that they pay attention. I hope they care. Not everyone does. Not everyone can. Um, but I... Uh, I I appreciate those who do. Something I've heard you say several times in lectures is that you know you're not trying to win an argument. Um, I, I, you may have even said things like you're not trying to persuade, but and rather that it's a kind of a testimony, a, a recitation of your own experience. But I'm curious. I mean, that makes me. I mean. And, and I think there's so much value to that approach. And as I have found myself feeling more fulfilled, it's when I've taken a non-argumentative approach to things. And in high school, when I did write, I did speeches, um, but I did not do debate. And part of the reason why is because I just wanted to be able to share thoughts and reflections without feeling like I needed to to win anything. And um, I mean, that, that, helped, that helped me out. And of course, one time when I did do a debate, I forgot which side... I was assigned. Oh, that's good. That sounds like what I would do. Yeah. <laughs> that's impressive, Noah. But so I mean but 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 the risk there, I think one risk that there that there is 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 that one can be relativistic or or not have a a ground to stand on when there's something that one wants to call out. 
if one is so insistent on the varieties of experiences and stances. So, I mean, how do we balance the two and making space for people's own experiences and relationships and notions and having common notions of accountability? Yeah, I think it's a ever, ever evolving project for me. I'm trying to, as it were, make more sense in being um, a little bit nonsensical or to be more crazy in my sanity so just to make it easier to follow how I'm getting from point A to point B it's a little bit of toing and froing between a person's in my case the professor's uh, you know um, commitment to following my own thought process not as a gratuitous demonstration of the world according to me but rather as a feeling that that's the one and only thing I have to give is like uh, being able to articulate my own experience of the art, you know, so that my students can begin dawningly to sense that they too can have an experience of art that is made up of the different things, the constellations of things they care for, and that their sensibility, nothing less than their sensibility, their soul is at stake in their regard for the world, um, which includes art. And so I think, no, I think I'm slowly, after 30 years, learning how to make that more and more, as they say, relatable to students so that people can feel there's a somewhat less arbitrary nature to it. Whereas before, I think I was writing almost like surrealist um juxtapositions, you know, and maybe being a little bit in a proud way, not consciously, but in a proud way being too enamored of my own, you know, um, lightning rounds of connections between this or that thing. Yeah. Can you talk about teachers who influenced you um, or books that shaped you as a, as a, as a thinker, especially as a child and as a young adult? When I was a kid, the Richard Scarry books made a big impression on me, you know, busy town. Um, the, the idea that everything could be happening simultaneously, kind of like it's in a doll's house where you see into each room and, and each building of each street in the city and you see everyone is doing things simultaneously. I think that characterizes a couple of my books. I wrote a book about Macbeth during the Civil War, one 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 performance of Macbeth during the Civil War and describing all the things that were happening from the stage on out to the fields in in and around Washington DC. The Forest is also a Richard Scarry kind of book in that way. Um Yeah, I think for teachers, I don't can't think of any models, really. Um, I think I've just done it my own way. I've learned a lot from different teachers, but I wouldn't say that they do it the same way I do it. Uh, and I think a thing that unites the Richard Scarry comment and the teaching comment is that I'm really not, you know, a, a, you know an academic in a really... Uh, um, obvious or clear way or you know I'm sort of convinced that really I sort of missed my probably my true calling which was to be an artist or a writer of some kind and you know I became an academic because it just seemed a little sweeter and softer and safer than being an artist and with artists in my family I didn't somehow I understood when I was your age that I didn't really have the mojo to be able to really be an artist. And I was probably, frankly, told in so many words that I shouldn't and couldn't be an artist. Um, So my whole way of being, childlike perception, teaching as though I'm crazy, teaching without learning outcomes, you know, being hated as a kind of pompous ass, you know, by some people, you know, I I just think it all comes from something that is different from being uh, just not an academic, you know, but that's how I've succeeded by being in in academe is because I 
do something that's not available elsewhere. Well, and of course, maybe you, you, you can't say this, but I mean, I think it's, it's clear to me that your lectures are a, a form of art, a kind of art, and that, you know, when, when you're lecturing, you're, you're, you're fulfilling the role of an artist, I think. Um, Thank you. Yeah, I think that would be the goal. It's not really a conscious goal, but I accept your definition because um, you could almost just say it's like a matter of self-defense. If you're talking about Caravaggio or Vermeer or someone like that, Pollock, you know, you better you better meet it on its own terms. Otherwise, it's going to be a totally thankless business. You know, it's scary being up there. I kind of like the scariness because it. I'm a pretty mellow, quiet person, and I am not a terribly public person, but I really find that the public pressure of needing to get up there and everyone's looking at me and just that I'm supposed to be interesting and keep people's attention for a while, like that's a suitable and noble challenge for me. Um, and so it does require an artistic form, I think. Before your invited lectures and book talks, and at the beginning of this program, right, someone else is always introducing you. Now that you've turned 60 and you're beginning the seventh decade of your life, I wanted to ask you to introduce yourself or define yourself. I mean, who is who is Alexander Nemirov to you? Wow, no one's ever asked me that before. Let me see. Um... He is a writer and speaker who, um, you know, tries, emphasis on tries, like attempts to speak to emotional truths and connect to art and life directly and who believes in quaint notions like the soul and has no other proof than the look in the student's eyes about uh, that that such a thing as a soul might actually be true, and who has come from long experience to understand that defensive uh, fortitude and fortification are not as strong as he thought they once were. And, um, you know, kind of... Um, strategy and argumentation and positioning and jockeying is only, no matter how well meant, is only of this world. And that what I have most to give is my otherworldliness, which is not a show like a circus freak show, but is actually meant to remind or portray or give really to others the remembrance that they too have another worldliness and um i thought I, I, by coming to stanford you know i would be able to shift or intervene in the technocratic culture of the place so price precisely these terms after 10 or 11 years now i would have to say that i've budged the culture probably like about one inch maybe maybe not even that it's very hard to say you know, some things never change, but it still feels, uh, you know, like a worthy thing and the only thing that I can do and should do. And of course, not not all consequences are seen at once, and it's entirely feasible that people who've heard you in these 11 years will feel activated you know, down the line when something strikes them and then they remember, you know, an experience in, in your class. I agree with that. Yeah, I think I'm teaching a lot to who people will be. Um, and I think that kind of thing happens a lot. I agree. Not just for me, of course, but for any teacher. Um, and in fact, I've met so many great students here who have become my friends because, like I said, I really learn from my students as much as the other way around. So that's all true. I just mean kind of institutionally, you know, I mean, what I do has no zero effect on on Stanford. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 
And but then that makes me want to ask you about your model of of historical change and how much room you think there is for individual people to make differences and how much of change are these forces beyond any of our control. Yes, I I think what I thought when I got here is what I still think now, which is that the only kind of change I can instantiate is a butterfly effect change. Um, you know, it starts with one class, it continues with the next class. And I guess I, uh, the reason I still believe in that is because I, I know it, it can be a way that with grace, as opposed to with, with influencers, let's say, but just simply with grace that one does cause things to change or could cause things to change. But I am also aware that I'm too quiet a person and not I'm not self-promoting enough to really um, cause historical change in some kind of, even in a minor way, like in a, you know, via my uh, way of being. So it's interesting that way. I still cannot get right. You know, maybe you have some advice for me, but I, I cannot get right like the ratios of quiet versus, um, you know, you know, like public presentation, like I and then correspondingly the ratios of um, confidence and humility, like I can never get that quite right. Uh, so probably if I had just a little bit more ego I mean, I have an ego for sure, but if I had more of it, I would probably be more of a mover and shaker here, and I would probably have, would have probably um, caused things to change more than I have. I'm a little too quiet and spacey to have it really happen, yeah. Maybe I'm also protecting what I have to give as being not a... um, you know, not like a Bitcoin of uh, emotion and feeling and worthiness, but something that really cannot be minted. Well, Professor Nimrov, thank you for coming onto the program. You're welcome. Thank you so much, Noah. That was my interview with Alexander Nemrov. You have been listening to Office Hours Air. We are a production of the Stanford Daily broadcast on KZSU's Stanford Radio 90.1 FM every Thursday at 10 a.m. At Office Hours Air, we try to combine discussion of someone's work and scholarship with their life. My hope is that the show will be of interest to people who want to learn more about our guests, to people who are themselves deciding what to do with the rest of their lives, to people who want to hear and then try out new ideas, new ways of thinking about and being in the world. If you have any thoughts to share or any ideas for future guests, you can email me at nsviven at kcsu.stanford.edu. That's n-s-v-e-i-v-e-n at kcsu.stanford.edu. I'd love to hear from you. Until next time, farewell for now. Thanks for listening.